this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. Have you ever heard the acronym BATNA? stands for Best Alternative to a Negotiated Agreement. And it can be one of the most powerful levers you have in the sale of your business. It essentially means I've got an alternative. It could be that you've got another buyer lined up for your business. It could be that you really don't have to sell your company. It's growing and it's successful and it's generating cash and therefore your baton is going to be well, continuing to operate independently. And that's exactly the space that our next guest, Stephanie Breedlove, found herself in. She was running a company with $9 million in revenue, growing 20% over the top line. And she got an offer of high 30s millions of dollars for her business. And I don't know about you, but it's a lot of money. And she turned it down because she had a baton, which is to continue to run her company independently. She was happy to do that because it was growing and throwing off lots of cash. And it gave her a really powerful position to jack up the price further. She ultimately sold the company for $55 million. To tell you the negotiation tips and tricks, here's Stephanie. Stephanie Breedlove, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hi, John. It's very nice to meet you, and it's my pleasure to share my story today. Oh, great. Okay, so let's get into this. So you were in the—I learned today that you were the largest payroll company for nannies. First of all, I didn't even know there was such a thing, that there was a payroll company that just did nanny payrolls, but that's amazing. Very much a niche business. Yeah, so how did you get into it? Well, of course, there's a a story behind every entrepreneurial endeavor. Um, the company was called Breedlove and Associates. It's now Care.com HomePay. Um, we actually founded in 1992, a long time ago. Um, and as you said, we convinced people that it's worth paying legally. And uh, summary of how we got into it is I went into corporate America, went to work for Accenture, Anderson Consulting back then, post-MBA, and took a typical career path. And in 1991, my first son was born. I have two sons. And they're a little over a year apart and wanted to have a dual career life and go back to my professional career and hired a nanny. And by the way, nannies weren't a common form of childcare yet, as the number of women returning to their careers after having children was just beginning to grow. And I was with Anderson. My husband was with Ernst & Young. And we not only wanted to, but we needed to pay her professionally um, and by the letter of the law. So we spent about 30 hours making phone calls and research, um, pulling our hair out, took a guess at what we were supposed to do and started trying to withhold taxes, pay her net correctly after calculating them, file returns on a quarterly basis, um, handle an ongoing flow of almost un understandable mail from the state and the IRS that's very poorly written. And 
we just started to percolate an idea out of our own need. Um, what if, what if there were other families who wanted to pay legally, we weren't the only ones in America, and if someone could eliminate the pain point, would they have someone help them and so and take over the work? People like ADP and Paychex and Ceridian, I mean, they didn't have a, a nanny solution you could use? They did not have a nanny solution at the time. Um, and we went into business in, in 1992. And uh, neither the large payroll processors like ADP um, or Ceridian um, actually moved into this space. Uh, it's a it's a very niche, fragmented space. The law is its own world. Um, so we did not have competition from the large payroll companies. And you're not making much money per customer, right? Because you only have one nanny. So it's like one pay. Okay, what, what's, what was the business model? How much money did you, how did you make money and, and how much did you make so kind of per customer? Yeah, so the business model is volume-based. Mm -hmm. um, you're exactly right. Um, we're targeting individual families who have a caregiver, largely a nanny or um, an elder care provider in their home. So you might and, pay them what, like 15, 20, $25,000 a year? Yeah. Something so the like average full-time caregiver is usually what was on our systems for people to feel that um, they should pay them legally and take advantage of the tax breaks that come with that and hassle with the administration. Average salaries may be between you know, twenty-five and forty thousand a year, probably the the true midpoint or average being in the low thirties. Okay. And our service, which took care of paying the caregiver, filing um, and remitting all the taxes, and then handling that flow of mail, I was just was just talking about, and offering consultation to the families as well to help them with employee management and the the labor law side of things. Uh, we charged on a quarterly basis, but the average fee per year is about a thousand dollars a year. It'll range between eight hundred and a thousand, so it's it's low dollar really. It's about two hundred to two hundred fifty dollars a quarter. Mm -hmm. um, so it's volume based. So and, our goal as we launched was to begin building volume. And let's talk about the volume. So how big did you get the thing before you wanted to sell it? What was the the volume that you got to? Yeah, so we were self-funded. So although we had a steady pace of growth um, for many years before acquisition, our growth was um, slower than probably would have occurred, you know, had we had outside investment. Um, and we grew at an average of about 20% a year over the course of about 18 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, some years, of course, were 60%, some years were 10%. And the volume in terms of clients, our average client lifetime was about four years per client. We used to say it was, you know, from a little bit after birth to preschool. Mm. <laughs> and um, at the time of acquisition, we had grown to about 10,000 active clients. And so what was the revenue of the company at 10,000 clients? At 10,000 clients, um, we were right at around $9 million in revenue. Got it. Okay. So you're $9 million bucks in recurring revenue because you're paying these, the, the families are paying quarterly, right? Right. Okay. Right. And they were not on a long-term contract. Um, they could, you know, come and go as they pleased. Got it. Okay. That's helpful for sure. And so um, you're $9 million in revenue, you're growing roughly 20% a year. You seem like, I mean, I'm looking at your picture on Skype. You, you look like about 25. So I'm like, you must've been young when you started this business. So you're probably still quite young. Am I getting that right? 
You're being very complimentary. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but but you look young. No, so I don't I don't mind sharing. I was actually 30 when I launched into the business, and I'm 52 now. So um, I'm a little older than probably some of the folks listening, and have wisdom to go with that. Got it. Okay. So what? I mean, I guess the reason I'm asking about age is is I mean, what happened for you and I mean, to make you want to sell this thing. I mean, it sounded like a, you're just printing money. It's a gold mine. Why sell? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we were highly profitable. I don't think I mentioned that. This is the type of business um, that can be highly profitable and highly efficient. Um, and and yes, I mean, it was really at a stage where, as you said, it was, it was somewhat uh, printing money. So what decided to make a sell? Um, my co-founder and I, my co-founder actually, by the way, is my husband. I took the leap into full-time entrepreneurship alone um, in the mid-90s after we tested for a couple of years. And then about three years in, one founder was just not taking the business where it needed to go. Uh, so he joined me and we put all of our eggs in one basket and grew from there. So when I talk about we, I'm talking about a, a husband and wife team. And we always had this kind of long-term business strategy that, you know, maybe once a year, sometimes every two years, um, we would kick the tires on and um, we called it preparing the company for next, um, having no idea what next may be. Um, in our view, we wanted to have control of all the opportunities and the choices before us. We didn't want to lose opportunity or have choices made for us because the company wasn't ready. And this has always been a critical element of kind of smart long-term planning. And here's an example. Uh, before the acquisition, when we were smaller, we had a time when we were turning down business development relationships because we couldn't handle some of the custom processes that they demanded because our systems were too simplistic and uh, we were missing opportunities. Or a more significant example of a next uh, is with a positive outcome, is we'd grown beyond our technology when we got to about 5 million in revenue and about 7,000 clients. And a safe next was to improve our technology to handle double the client volume. But instead, uh, we invested about 2 million and added an IT department to build an enterprise system that could handle up to 50,000 clients. We thought this was the right decision for being prepared for a potential large next, whether it was large scale growth on our own, partnership, acquisition, you know, who knew? But I mean, in uh, your mind, were you guys thinking, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna sell this company when we get to 10 million in revenue? Like, was there, like what was the trigger, I guess, that made you go, okay, it's time? No, um, one of the next on our list um, in terms of just defining next for us um, was that someday we might be offered a partnership, a merger, an acquisition. We might be faced with becoming the board of directors um, and stepping out ourselves as we aged. Um, around 2010, we started to have these kinds of discussions and we weren't actually seeking a particular type of exit or as we called it, a particular type of next. But we began discussing and planning and setting up criteria for if one of these next came along that represented an exit for us, we wanted to be prepared for it. And to be honest, we'd had a couple of phone calls from companies outside our industry, outside the care industry, in the financial services industry, um, and in the payroll and benefits industry, just 
kicking the tires is what I call it. Uh, not serious really about engaging in an acquisition, but wanted to open a discussion. And we didn't feel the timing was right. Um, and at that time, this was probably around 2010, at that time we decided we'd put some criteria down that if we had an acquisition opportunity or if we decided to sell, which we had not decided to sell when the opportunity came along, we would set the criteria that we would want to see executed against that would make for a successful exit. And when Care.com called, and they called unsolicited, uh, they seemed to meet the criteria. What was the criteria? There's three items on the list. Number one was, first and foremost, a strong opportunity for the company, for the company to go on and be bigger and better without its co-founders. Second was opportunity for the team. We wanted to see our team be able to continue to grow in careers and not be replaced. And also for us, we knew we were going to grow their career. We wouldn't keep them. And third, and the obvious third, um, is a financial exit that satisfied our expectations. And when Care.com called and wanted to open a dialogue, those three criteria looked like they were going to be met. So we began the dialogue, even though we weren't actively seeking an acquisition at that time. So they called you. Did did so? Tell us about that. I mean, take us. So it was a phone call. Was it the CEO? Was it over dinner? I mean, give me the give me the the behind the scenes of what that 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 approach looked like. Here's how it went for us. We had a low level content relationship with care.com at the time. Obviously, we're both in the same industry, um, a good synergistic match, and we had been providing content to them um, in our space in in order to um, allow their content to be more robust. So we were in relationship with care.com at a middle management level. And so it's not like they didn't know who we were and what we brought to the industry. But It's like you read about in books or in the movies, the CEO, Sheila Marcello, she called out of the blue one day and I did not know her. I had not met her previously, nor had I had a conversation with her. And she happened to catch me between meetings and I was piqued. I said, hey, I'll take this call. So I took the call and for probably about six weeks, we spent some time maybe Um, every 10 days or so, simply learning about each other in each other's companies. So the dialogue was opened personally by Sheila Marcello, and we spent about a month and a half simply just getting to know each other. And then when did it go from nice getting to know you conversations to, hey, we want to buy you? It went pretty quickly. Um, and, And John, I took the lead on this. I'm not sure if they were interested in acquiring us, but, you know, as a 18-year-old company, you know, run by a husband and wife team, I think they may have been a little concerned that that might have scared us off. Um, And I think they were content to continue to get to know us and let us get to know them. And finally, after about six weeks, I remember this, I said to Sheila, I said, I'm really enjoying getting to know you um, and learning more about care.com. And it's great to see um, a company emerging in the in-home care space. It's VC backed. I mean, it's very exciting. It's great for the industry, but you're busy and I'm busy. So where's this going? And I think 
she wasn't only taken aback, I think she was pleased to hear that. And um, I would say probably um, from that point to acquisition was um, about four months. And at that moment, we began having very serious discussions and walking through the process step by step that is typical of an acquisition um, from, you know, NDAs to sharing financial information to traveling back and forth and meeting management teams and due diligence and data rooms and so on and so forth. And uh, did you have uh, any sort of representation? Did you have an M&A person or a lawyer that you engaged with? Yes. So here's how we handled it, which is, I think, a little bit atypical. Um, we did engage an acquisition lawyer immediately, and he was on our team um, from the outset and all the way through the end. Um, but we did not engage a consultant or a broker. Um, my husband's Bill's background um, is in joint ventures and mergers and acquisitions. So I had a co-founder with that experience. And with that experience in tow, we decided that the co-founders were the best people to shepherd the negotiations rather than an outsider who may have negotiation expertise but doesn't know the company um, and its best wishes um, as good as, as the co-founders do. Mm -hmm. So I took the lead um, in the negotiations and you know, my husband was kind of the silent counsel behind the scenes. And then we had a lawyer with us. So we were a team of three and that's it the whole way. And so at what point did you get a letter of intent from Sheila? So if I'm remembering timing correctly, um, we started talking in early March of 2012. And um, we felt like we had gotten to a point where we could ink a letter of intent by mid-July. So about four months to letter of intent. And then from letter of intent to finalizing the acquisition was about six weeks. Okay. And the final acquisition, I understand some of this is public. So just walk me through the key numbers on the acquisition price, if you would. Oh, I'd be happy to. It's public information since care.com is now a public company. It's in the S1. So the total consideration is uh, was $55 million. And uh, we negotiated 50% of that in cash and 50% in stock of care.com. Got it. And was there an earnout at all? Yes, there was an earnout. Um, and earnouts are very typical. I would say to listeners that, you know, no seller wants an earnout. Um, but after coming through it, I don't believe an earnout is something that that a seller um, should should really work hard to try to get rid of. You have to choose your battles on where the give and take is going to be in an acquisition. And if you are proud of the value that you are offering and have confidence in what the company can do post acquisition, and you have trust in the company that is acquiring you, then an earnout with an acceptable set of terms should be standard. And, and, and we did negotiate this. I mean, naturally, the, the buyer um, wants the earnout in our case, to take into account potential synergies. Um, we, it was a synergistic buy. We were very good for each other in the industry. And, you know, they wanted to, you know, double the growth rate uh, for the earnout. And, of course, we took the opposite approach. Um, we said, well, we could have trouble in the transition. 
there could be some road bumps um, as the two companies come together um, that could derail our current rate of growth. And we decided to meet in the middle and we agreed upon the historic rate of growth uh, for the earnout benchmark. Mm. So the historic rate of growth was 20%. So you had to hit a 20% top line revenue growth number. Right. In order, got it. And we did. And we had a two-year earnout and um, we hit the earnout. And 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 the earnout, <clears throat> the fifty-five million in total consideration. Did that include the earnout, or was the earnout above and beyond that? No, that included the earnout. Got it. And what proportion of the deal was on the earnout? It was split just like the total deal. Um, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about stock versus cash. I apologize. It was twenty percent. So it was ten percent in the first year and ten percent in the second year. Got it. And and was it cumulative? Meaning, if you missed the first year, could you still meet, you know get the second year, or did you have to hit the first year to get the second year? Um, neither. <laughs> um, if we didn't hit the first year, we lost the first year, but we still had the opportunity to hit the second year, um, independent of the first year. Got it. Okay. And so the fifty-five million total consideration, like how how much. How different was the final acquisition, the final share purchase agreement from the the letter of intent that you signed? It was not different at all. Wow, that's great. Um, as a matter of fact, leading up to the letter of intent, and I and I think this was, you you hit on an interesting point. Um, as a seller, we didn't want to go four months into a letter of intent, and then have the real terms of the deal get ironed out between letter of intent and acquisition. And that's a waste of everybody's time. So we set a very realistic range that we felt we could justify, that we were confident in, and that we were also willing to walk away if we could not meet um, that range. And we stuck to that. And that was our goal in getting to the letter of intent. Meaning you had a number in mind that you thought it was worth? We did. We had a yeah. range in mind, um, and um, we were willing to work within that range, um, but we weren't willing to compromise and we're willing to walk away. And that's the nice thing about not feeling that you want to or need to sell. Um, it puts you in a very nice position. What was the range you guys thought the business was worth that you were comfortable negotiating within? You know, we well, we were an 18-year-old company at the time, um, and a very profitable company, and a relatively mature company. So, we viewed our valuation in terms of EBITDA, and um, we felt um, that a multiple for us would produce a total consideration of somewhere between 50 and 60 million. Got it. Got it. And where did you, where, why did you, how did you get that benchmark? What, what, what were you looking at to arrive at a, even a multiple? You know, that's, that's an interesting question because there are, as you know, standard methods of valuation. Um, there are, are standards, depending on the industry that you're in, there are comps in every industry. Comparables, um, yeah. Yeah, that, you know, that, um, you know, drive a logical price of a, of a, of a company. In our industry, there really weren't any comps mm. um, because we're in a very much of a niche industry. Um, and we did go through the exercise of having a valuation expert value the company. And I would encourage anyone to do that because I think it's an important exercise. But What did they we, come back at? 
you know, they came back with um, a multiple of seven to 10 times EBITDA, um, given the strength of the company, given its its growth rate, and that we'd had growth in every year since inception, that we were being acquired by a company that was bringing synergies to the table. And um, we negotiated on the high end of that. Mm. Um, and, you know, we, you, I think you have to be logical. I mean, everybody would like to say that, you know, the sweat equity that they put into a company means that it's worth a ridiculous amount of money. And of course, every buyer would like to say that you're worth, you know, a lot less than, than you think you are. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, really the value of your company is that match of what someone will pay for it and what you're willing to sell it for. You know, when I talk to people who've gone through this process before, they usually say almost inevitably that during the negotiation, there were two or three times when they thought the deal was over. Either they walked or the other side walked, but they were basically done. What was the toughest part for you in the negotiation? Was there a point where you thought, you know what, this is over. I'm not going through with this. There were two of those. And and you should listen to those because they they could just be bumps in the road or they could be signs that you you do need to walk away and another opportunity will come your way. Um, that happened twice for us. Uh, the first time in the very early stages of discussion, uh, we had gotten past general discussion. We were not at letter of intent, um, but we had shared financials and uh, shared details of strategies of the business and we were starting to talk price range and we were very far apart. Uh, One thing that was very different in our negotiations and we had to come to some common terms is is that Care.com is a VC-backed company and at the time was not profitable and was focused 100% on top line um, and pouring every bit of cash that they had into growth, you know, under the the VC-backed model. So they viewed our value and the multiple on revenue, and we viewed it on EBITDA. And that made for some very difficult discussions in the very beginning. And we got to a point where I felt that the company was worth much more than than what they were valuing it for. And they felt very strongly um, that it wasn't. And that doesn't make either of us right or wrong, um, but you come to an impasse. So what did they we think clo- it was worth in the beginning? Um, they were in the high 30s. Um, and, you know, we were 15 to 20 million higher. And that's, that's significant. And um, so my husband and I just decided that we probably should just walk away. And we actually really liked the conversation and the discussions. They were great discussions, but we were just too far apart at the time. And maybe the timing wasn't right. Maybe in another year or two, the timing would be right. Um, So we closed down the negotiations and we just agreed that we liked each other's stories, um, but that we were too far apart and that maybe this wasn't the day. And about six weeks went by, and I can't tell you what occurred, you know, inside the boardroom at care.com. I have no idea. But about six weeks weeks went by, and Sheila called back, and she said, you know, we have really been, you know, discussing the potential, your side of the argument, 
and we'd like to reopen discussions and see if we can get closer. And I said, fair. Um, so we did. So that was number one. And the number two was in the very end, and I think this is probably very common. Um, we had gotten past letter of intent. And once you get past letter of intent and you start that process towards finalizing the agreement, it gets very technical. Um, and, you know, lawyers get involved, teams of lawyers and accountants. And, you know, it starts creating uh, or taking on a persona that is a discussion, a constant discussion of the what ifs and the worst case scenarios and all the risk that you seem to have put into a logical framework. But now you're questioning as to whether or not you were just enamored with the idea of an exit. Uh, and I, I think sometimes there's a little bit of panic that your buyer is not who they said they were, and maybe you weren't really ready to sell. And there is a little bit of panic that happens sometimes, and you have to step back and you have to say, is this a sign of something larger that I missed? Or is this because this is a significant event and it has high emotion um, and loss of sleep um, and, and high stakes? And we had one of those moments, and I was close enough to the CEO of Care.com at the time that I called Sheila, and I said, we need to talk through the following three or four points. I don't even remember what they were. And I said, because I'm having cold feet, and I need to make sure that I'm not making a mistake. And I was that open and that transparent. And we did, and um, I was just panicking, <laughs> and, and then we moved forward. So as you as you look back on the three or four deal points now, were they material or, or were, like were they sort of trivial and you were literally kind of having cold feet? They were trivial. Um, it, uh, to be fair, though, um, I, I really needed to gain a confidence level um, that they were trivial. Oh, I, I remember one of them being around the earnout um, and the negotiation on the earnout. And um, I remember the second one being the motivation around a board seat. Uh, we did not obtain a board seat of which we desired. And that was one of our gives, if you will. And, and in the end, I, I'm actually glad that I didn't take a board seat. I think there would have been too much of a conflict of interest. Um, and, and also, I'm a very different breed than a board full of venture capitalists. How did the sh how has the share uh, for Care.com uh, progressed since 2012? It uh, went out in the IPO um, at 17, um, and it, it has fallen. Uh, it currently hovers around about 10. But the care industry is a long play. I know. I've been in it for over 20 years. Um, and the march to profitability has made a big difference for care.com. And in the past six months, they've turned a profit and they're on their way to a profitable uh, uh, structure. So um, I, I think they're doing well. Are they doing as well as they wanted to um, at the outset um, with the IPO in 2014? No, but um, they're a solid company and the care industry is a long play and they're a leader in the industry. And I think, I think they're going to do well. And I think a lot of people listening would really value tips and tricks that you have related to taking stock in the acquirer in, in the form of compensation. So you took half of your deal was in stock of care. Um, 
walk us through the sort of limitations that, that you had. I'm, su- I'm assuming you couldn't just go around and sell it on the public markets, but maybe you could just talk about, about what, what uh, restrictions you had around those shares. <clears throat> yeah, I think I would say, first of all, that anyone who's looking at selling um, a company in which there is stock in the consideration, you have to be very, very comfortable with the risk that that presents um, because it's often a long-term play uh, and, you know, stock has risk. And we knew that going in. Uh, you know, naturally, we would love to have sold to Care.com for 100% cash, and they would have loved to have purchased us for 100% stock. Um, and we we compromised in the middle. And I, I think it was an appropriate compromise, uh, given that they were only a seven-year-old company. Um, they were marching towards an IPO, and it was an appropriate structure for a company of their structure. But once we inked the deal, uh, we stayed for an additional almost two and a half years to ensure the transition went smoothly um, and to participate with the larger company in the IPO. So when you're an employee of the larger company, you have restrictions um, and you you can't sell. You can only sell your stock um, during the open windows for employees. So for a significant period of time, we can only you know sell along with employees. And as executives of the company, when a company goes public, uh, every deal is a little bit different. Um, but executives are locked up for whatever the company negotiates with them. But it's typically anywhere from six months to a year. So you'd love for the IPO to have a pop and sell your stock and ride off into the sunset, but it doesn't work that way. (laughs) Um, We've now exited the company. I've been out for a year and a half now. um, And, you know, we are selling them on the, you know, open market at will whenever we want to. Got it. Got it. That's super helpful. Talk about the emotional impact. I mean, here you are, your husband and wife, you've just got this colossal check. I mean, how did that how did that manifest itself sort of in your life after selling? That is a loaded question. Um, I did know that in the exit that I'm not the kind of person and, and nor is my husband who can just travel and play golf and act retired. Um, our, our sons are grown. They're 24 and 25 and both out of college and living on their own. So we are empty nesters. Um, And and that has been true. I'm not that person. Um, We are struggling to build these kinds of pleasures into our life. Uh, Actually, when we exited, we took a year to rest and rejuvenate. And there were many days during that year when I found myself saying, I'm working really hard at not working. Um, So that has been an interesting journey. But I actually thought when I exited that I'd begin this new phase of philanthropy in my local community. I've always been very actively involved, whether it be industry boards or school fundraising or et cetera. Um, And that's not where I am right now. Um, This uh, isn't where I'm giving back. I'm actually focused at giving back in entrepreneurship, uh, where my talents have been 
And I, I couldn't be happier with my choice right now. So tell me what that looks like. I understand you've got a book coming out and what, like, how, do, what, how, what kind of, how are you giving back through entrepreneurship? I do. So, um, you know, what I'm doing right now is I've become an active angel investor. Uh, those of us who've been entrepreneurs, I think we make very, very good angel investors. Um, I am also a mentor once a week for free. I'm doing mentoring for entrepreneurs. And um, you're exactly right. After I left the business, I realized that although my story as a woman in entrepreneurship isn't really extraordinary, I realized that it's actually not very typical. There are less than 10,000 women who own businesses or have equity positions in businesses with over 15 million in revenue. And one of the top three reasons that they don't start or scale a business is a lack of role model. We're those of us who've been there and done it are kind of like we're like looking for a needle in a haystack. Hmm. So uh, through some encouragement from friends and family and business associates, I decided to write a book uh, to be a value to those behind me. And it's called All In. Um, the subtitle is How Women Entrepreneurs Can Think Bigger build sustainable businesses and change the world. It comes out February 7th. And the intention is to help women in particular find the answer to that calling if they think they're going to be entre they want to be entrepreneurs. And to not just start businesses, but build businesses of scale. Right. Because, because the stats show, you know, women are starting businesses at a much higher rate, but they often don't necessarily scale at the same rate. So that's an interesting conundrum. You're trying to crack that nut with this book. Is that right? That's exactly right. That's hey, exactly right. Hey, I, I, I wish you all the success in the world with that. Uh, all in February, I'm assuming it's going to be available through wherever books are sold kind of thing, Amazon and so forth. Yes, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, it's available for pre-order now. A little awesome. shameless promotion there. Yeah, no, no, go for it. Uh, we're all entrepreneurs here. We can handle a little stuff. self-promotion. <laughs> Let me ask you one question. It, it relates to your kids. Two boys, you said, 24 and 25? Yes. What are you doing with them? Mom's got a check for 55 million bucks. It's all over the news. If they want to Google it, they can find it. I'm sure they have. How do you how do you talk to them about, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is a lot of money. I mean, are you having those conversations with them? Yes, and it's an evolution. Uh, we self-funded this business and they were toddlers when we started. So they have watched us, you know, go from bootstrap entrepreneurs, um, you know, with you know, simple outings and clothes from Walmart in the early days to a $55 million check, you know, and the journey from, from A to Z. And to be honest, they are both a little uncomfortable with the size of the exit and uh, what it represents. And mostly because they were with us on the journey and we've raised them to be humble, hardworking young men, but they're also only 24 and 25 and wrapping their arms and their brains around what that means for their family and for their future uh, is a lot to think about right now. And we take it one step at a time and we actually talk about it as a family. Uh, we're not the kind of people who are going to say, 
okay, Davis and Austin, those are their names. Um, I'm going to throw a lot of money at you right now and hope you handle it well. <laughs> we're, we're, we're navigating it together as a family. And our priority as parents is to help them find their passions and their talents. And money doesn't always do that. Well said. The book is called All In. It comes out in February. Stephanie Breedlove, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.